Well, uh, people of God, it's such a gift to be with you once again, um, Restoration Community Church. Um, it is my privilege to root us in the Word of God, uh, Revelation 7, 9, uh, that reads uh, as such. After this, I looked, and there before me, reading from the NIV, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Thanks be to God. Well, today's sermon is, does Christianity crush diversity? You know, I have to be honest, you know, uh, I'm an Afro-Latino male, neurodivergent, 35, um, unmedicated, if, you know, if that helps. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, if the sermon's bad, blame it on that. How about that? Um, and as an Afro-Latino-American, I can't help but name how I entered even the title. As I read the title, Does Christianity Crush Diversity?, my first question was, is Christianity a white man's religion? In my body and where I come from, that's the first question that came up. And as I read some of the book that Pastor Chris is walking us through, and as I thought of not only my Christian rearing, but also what I know of the global church, certainly not. Um, there's an amazing, um, if you want to check out, there's an amazing conversation between a bunch of black Christian leaders um, answering that very question. Um, Jamar Tixby um, and Esau McCulley, these are some names you can look up. It's a panel. It's amazing. Highly recommend it. But that's not my sermon today. What I can say to that first question as I approach the scripture and this sermon title is that uh, the Christianity preceded the, the creation of white men. You with me? The idea of there being white people is relatively new throughout human history. And the creation of that was built largely due to the creation of the concept of race. Brian Stevenson calls it the narrative of racial difference. This, this story that we tell ourselves that there's a difference based on race, that there's a meaningful distinctiveness just based on a socially constructed, made-up thing. I just read a scripture to you. There's no mention of race. Amen? Um, and so what I want to say is that preceding the creation of the white man, uh, the, the Christianity was actually huge. <laughs> it was huge in China, huge in India, and huge throughout Africa before it ever touched Europe. Europa, right? And so the thing is, I just wanted to, to name that and to piggyback on that as the book that um, uh, Pastor Chris is walking you through uh, talks about that, uh, you know, most missionaries currently to date uh, throughout the world uh, are coming from South Korea, um, parts of uh, countries in Africa, not the U.S., right? Uh, and so uh, it's amazing to know that a lot of South Korean missionaries are actually popularizing, not just popularizing, spreading the gospel throughout India and the rest of China. Right? There's something called the 1040 window, which is a window throughout, um, I believe it's from, if you were to draw a big oval in the middle of like from like southern Spain all the way, well southern Italy all the way to like China, central China, that's called the 1040 window. And what that is, is that's the area where the most churches uh, in, in Christianity are persecuted throughout the world. And they're the least reached. And, and what's interesting is that that 1040 window is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and it's not because of American missionaries that it is. 
And so what I wanted to acknowledge is like, as I approached the scripture, I had to wrestle with that question, and I was, was so happy to find out no. <laughs> of course, I knew that. Thank you for laughing. And I was an attempt at a joke. Thank you, this side. We'll work on this side. But, uh, but the ultimate question of the sermon is, does Christianity crush diversity? Well, you know what's funny? Uh, the, the, the very sentence of this sermon title is an interesting one. You see that operational word crush is an interesting choice of words because in this sentence, crush is a contronym. Anybody know what a contronym is? Well, it's very similar to the word antonym and synonym. It's in that category of like understanding English language. But a contronym is a word that has opposing definitions. For example, uh, you ever heard the word weathering? You ever heard this term? Weathering can mean I weathered the storm, that, that you overcame, right? But weathering also, as a contronym, can mean erosion, even to the point of erasure. So both meanings are right. It has opposing definitions. Similarly, crush has opposing definitions. I mean, I don't have to spell it out for you, right? Crush can mean shattering, an irreparable shattering. But crush can also mean what? Just like that play last night or, or this past week. Ch- crushed it, triumph, right? Nailed it. Well, that's another contronym, but that will, you know, the cross, we'll deal with that later. But my point is, is that this, this word crush is such a fun contronym to deal with to, in today's sermon. Because the two opposing ideas of does Christianity crush diversity, um, to the answer to that question is yes. It both shatters diversity and joins in its triumph. Well, as one of the top uh, monotheistic religions in the world, uh, Christianity, regarding quantity of devout followers globally, the Christian church, I want to separate as big C and the Christian church just little c. I'm doing that. This way. this way. Yeah. Did I do that right? You see? Okay. Thank you. For all you watching, my bad. Um, but the big C church is oftentimes known in Christianity as the global church. Um, when we read the different creeds, you'll hear it called the Catholic church. But it's not Catholicism we're mentioning. We're, C- Catholic was usually a term in Christian history used for all of us. Catholic was this term for the all of us as Christians. You with me? Little C Church is for the local spaces, like Restoration Community Church, any church you pass by on the way to choosing this one. Thank you, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, I need to make this distinction, because when I say yes, based on the study and what we're going to learn in Scripture today, that Christianity in the big C, the Catholic Church, yes, crushes diversity. But too often the little C churches don't always participate in what Christ's blood has bought. For years, there was a saying, quoted by many, especially with Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Day coming up, I believe, tomorrow? He would always say, that it's often quoted, that the most segregated hour in North America is high, what, high at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning? 11 a.m.? 11 a.m. Sunday morning. We're at 11.20 now, so... Has anyone ever heard this quote? If not, you heard it today, because this is a popular quote that signifies the realities in which the little C church in North America does not always participate with the crushing of, uh, of Christianity, crushing diversity. It, naturally, I don't have to name it, but it names the racialization 
in the U.S. This narrative of racial difference that I mentioned. Because diversity without unity is not the kind of diversity that tells the world of the Savior we claim, nor the kingdom we come from. I'll say that again. Diversity without unity is not the kind of diversity that tells the world of the Savior we claim, nor the kingdom we come from. Let me make another point, drill this down deeper. Anybody ever heard of slavery in America? Everyone heard of that? Yes. Did you know that on, on Sunday morning, it became normative for um, white men to bring guns to church? Not because of some law or, you know, right to bear arms, but because they felt the Sunday was the most vulnerable time for a revolt. Sundays was also a time when um, most um, um, lynchings would happen on Sundays. And to ruin it a little more for you, ever heard of the term picnic? That term is taken from pick a n-word. So ruin that word for you. But, but even in our language, we are dripping with the blood of our history. The Little C Church. You know, um, it got so bad to the point where they started to recognize that we should bring the slaves to church. And so what they would do is they would take a balcony and all the slaves had to sit up there. And then all the masters and their family would sit where you're sitting. But this wasn't just because they wanted to evangelize the slave, the enslaved, right? But it was the best way to keep, keep them under watch. It's harder for them to rebel if they're right above us. So again, let me read this statement. You can be diverse and have no unity whatsoever. Because diversity without unity is not the kind of diversity that tells the world of the Savior we claim nor the kingdom we come from. What does Revelation 7, 9 say? Again, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. This is how we end. This is where we're going. But how does the little C church in North America join up with the big C church of the global church, Jewish and non-Jewish alike? What if the way out of these potholes of xenophobia, racism, sexism, homophobia in North America, um, how do we get out of it? How do we get out of this um, shattering of diversity amongst our Christian congregations. Some would say, well, we should be multi-ethnic. We should tend, uh, attend a multi-ethnic church. Well, I helped plant a multi-ethnic church once, and I have learned some lessons to share from my experiences. But before I do, I'd like to read to you a segment from an article in Christianity Today that addresses the promise of multi-ethnic churches in North America. A recent study reveals that in 2019, multiracial churches made up about 16% of all congregations in the U.S., compared to 6% in 1998, while Catholics have consistently had the largest percentage of multiracial churches, 17% in 1998 and 23% of all Catholic churches in 2019. Evangelical churches showed the greatest increase, moving from 7% in 1998 to 22% in 2019. I'm sorry, that was a lot of numbers, okay? But the, the study, uh, the article goes on to read, multiracial congregations have gained a greater share of American churches over the past 20 years. But as my colleagues and I have found, they are not delivering on what they promised. Multiracial churches often 
celebrate being diverse for diversity's sake. They aren't challenging any racial attitudes that reinforce systemic inequality. Rather, they either attract blacks and Latinos who already had attitudes that reinforced inequality, or blacks and Latinos over time begin to adopt whites' typical individualistic ideas about race in America. They become assimilated. Additionally, uh, this is near the end of the article here. Additionally, studies show that people of color in multiracial churches are often relegated to roles that are more symbolic. Ones that people see, like usher or singer, but that have no real influence or authority in that church. This can even occur when racially homogenous churches merge to become a racially diverse church. Like, let's say there was a Filipino church that met in the basement, right? And uh, Pastor Chris was to say, you know what, let's just, let's just do this. Right? Over time, based on this study that this article is based off of, whites end up occupying the roles in the church with the most authority. Racial diversity without power, equality, is not good news for anyone, especially not for people of color. I don't know about you, but it feels like an echo of the slaves, the enslaved that only get to sit upstairs. Just a different evolution of it. So, again, what is the goal? Well, I would just want to add that the same can be said across, if we're talking about diversity, even for our brothers and sisters in Christ of the LGBT community. This neither affirms nor confirms or denies anything that we may disagree on, but the fact that there are bodies that are diverse, that's the question. When it comes to that, there's similar stories that this article does not name. The funny thing is, our unity is not in our multi-ethnic congregations, but in Jesus Christ who binds us all as the engrafted branches that we are. Amen? Let me say that again. We got, we got to say amen a little stronger on that one. Our unity is not in our multi-ethnicity, but in Jesus Christ who binds us all as engrafted branches that we are. Amen? amen? Without Christ breaking down the power barrier between different peoples his blood brings together, we are just assembling different groups for assimilation. We're just assembling different groups for colonization. We're just assembling different groups, women, different ethnicities, different faces and bodies for subjugation for subjugating one another under a steeple as opposed to under a government. You can even call them Tower of Babel collectives rather than churches. You see, look at your neighbor and say, we're talking about power now. And if you don't have a neighbor, look behind you and say, we're talking about power, okay? Without addressing the power dynamics that live within what Brian Stevenson calls the narratives of, of, narratives of racial difference, for example. Uh, well, let me just clarify. Michael, what is the narrative of racial difference? Uh, according to Brian Stevenson, the, uh, the narrative of racial difference is the false belief that black people are inherently inferior. And that narrative has continued to haunt the United States, and this false narrative of racial difference was created to justify slavery and has survived beyond slavery's formal abolition turning into decades of racial terror, subjugation, assimilation, and segregation. So I'll say it like this. Remember what your neighbor told you, okay? When it comes to power, 
it is easy to be seduced by the illusions of superiority and inferiority. For inequality is what makes superiority meaningful. Inequality gives the, any belief of superiority teeth. Michael, what are you talking about? Uh, let me say it like this. Every single body in this room was taught something as you were a child of the superiority of your body versus another. I'm adopted. I told you I'm Afro-Latino. I'm Afro-Cuban. I was taught, I don't even know how, where I learned it, but I was taught something that Cubans are better than Mexicans. Going to a, um, I went to a Chinese Baptist church in Florida, and at some point I learned that Han Chinese were better than everybody. And I also learned that at a Chinese church that Chinese were better than Japanese. It was just like, don't, don't say it, but it was implicit, and it became very clear. Right? I don't care who you are. I mean, again, I'm an Afro-Latino male. There's, there's, <laughs> I'm not actually giving away tea. There's, there's, there's rifts between light-skinned blacks and dark-skinned blacks. Something inspired by the Willie Lynch laws, right? Look it up. It's horrifying. But it was, it, it was brought into North American slavery to keep the light skins and dark skins against each other, create divisions so that you can control both. That echoes into the culture today. My point is, dear white-bodied brother and sister in Christ, you have something you were taught about superiority to. Can you name it? Because you can't tame what you can't name, amen? Look at your neighbor and say, name it to tame it in the name of Jesus. <laughs> These narratives of racial difference buttress racism inside and outside of the church. And if so, how is our blood-bought diversity to be a testament to a broken world, like it was in the book of Acts? Narratives of racial difference, for example, keep the little C church in America from rubble of those walls of separation that the blood of Christ crushes. The walls held by society without living into the crushed power dynamics that function like rhubarb in the concretes uh, of those walls. We will be crushed in our endeavor and crushed along with it. For without addressing power, we live into the form of diversity of Revelation 7-9 without the function of its power. My point is, um, obedience to Christ is more about function than form. Obedience and faithfulness to biblical diversity is not about what we look like, but who are we together? Multi-ethnic churches are not without their problems. Oftentimes, because they commit to look like Revelation 7-9, in form, not function. But at the end of the day, until we can all recognize that power and superiority belongs only to God the Father, not any subgroup over another, um, we won't be able to live into the truth of Scripture. Let's look at two stories where this sense of power was faced by the multi-ethnic first attempts of the early church. Now, just as a heads up, we're going to look into two forms of power. Um, so one is social power, and the other is power over resources. We'll see if you can tell which is which. So first, we're going to open up to Acts 6, 1 to 6, and in this story, we see that Acts, um, the early church, amen, um, is trying to be multi-ethnic too. Um, we see in this, uh, in this section of Acts that uh, something called the Hellenistic widows, or the Greek widows and the Jewish widows, are having, um, some issues. 
You see, it was the charge of the Christian church back in the day that anyone who was a widow was taken care of by the church because in that day, um, a a woman's power um, was relegated to the men they they were related to. You were as powerful as your father, son, or brother. And without any proximity to them, you had no power. And so in that day, if your son died and husband died, you were literally not just homeless, but, I mean, the worst of the worst in the sense of what the world could throw at you with no support, with no one to advocate for you, and no voice before the government. And so the Christian church adopted and said that the widows are our responsibility. Um, part of the tithes were to serve them, and as I'm sure some of you have already read Acts 1-6 through 6 by now, this story identifies that there's two different widows in the church. There are the Greek widows, and there are Jewish widows. And the Greek Judas are saying, hold up! Jewish widows are getting way more stuff than us. And I don't know about you if you ever, you know, um, I don't know, did the Christmas shopping thing. Anyone ever see um, Jingle All the Way? Turbo Man? Right? Like, you, when, when, when there's a limited resource and everybody wants them, it can get a little crazy. Okay? Um, I have this funny, the scene lives in my head forever where, you know, they're, you know, remember the balls they were throwing? It's like, you know, you can get a turbo man if you got the lucky number ball. And they throw the balls and, you know, the parents are jumping for balls and biting each other. And Arnold Schwarzenegger says of Sinbad, he got two, he got two. And the people go and attack him and attack the mailman. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, that was, that was self-indulgent. Uh, but nonetheless, the widows are uh, not having it. The Greek widows are not having it. And so they go to the leaders of the church. I'm summarizing the scripture here. But we see a power dynamic between who deserves more of a distribution of the goods. And as you read Acts 6, you'll discover that the apostles have said, hey, um, this is not our responsibility. And they establish men of different ethnicities to govern the distribution of the church resources to the widows, which is their responsibility. So again, shared power. Help them embody the multi-ethnic goal of the early church. Galatians 2, 11 to 16. I'm going to read this one. Um, we see another uh, instance uh, where, i got to get to verse 11. Uh, it starts like this. I'll read it to you. This is from the NIV that I'm reading this. When Cephas, also known as Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, Paul speaking here, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Uh, I don't know about you, but I grew up in church, so when I read scripture, sometimes it just feels like uh, Charlie Brown's wah, 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 wah. Let me give you Michael's version of what happened. Peter's tripping, 
okay? Peter's hanging out with Gentiles. And if you don't know Jewish, like I, I grew up with Jewish friends, like there is serious superiority and elitism issues when it comes to being Jewish or a Gentile, okay? Gentiles are seen as like, that's us, by the way, white or black, Latino, that's all of us, okay? And so in the early church, it was a big deal for Jews to even eat around Gentiles because they were seen as unclean and all this stuff. And so the early church is bringing these two people together. And so an apostle of the faith, look at your neighbor and say, that's a big deal. deal. That's a big deal. Um, Apostle's a big deal. That's like Pope hanging out and being like, what's up, dude? Let's go grab some barbecue. Okay. Man, this uh, Peter is eating with Gentiles. And as soon as um, the whole book of Romans was primarily written because of this issue. Because Jews wanted all Gentiles to be circumcised and basically do everything to become Jewish. Basically assimilate. Subjugate yourselves and be like us because we are the standard. That's how Jews believed. And we see an apostle who is a leader fall into the seduction of that superiority. That elitism. So much so that Paul is watching a group that believed in that superiority, walk in the room, and apostle pull away, make as much distance himself between the people he's eating with, and then go sit with them. So much so that other Jews like him leave the Gentiles, walk away, and go sit with them. Here's the thing. Have you ever seen a kid get bullied? I've seen a kid get bullied. And I've seen what happens when other people who should say no to that don't. And one thing that's not talked about in the scripture is what do you think the Gentiles felt? When the leader, the person they look up to, their pastor, if you will, pulls away from them just because other people look like him walk in. It's a spit in the face of the gospel. So much so that Paul, who's a Jew among Jews, by the way, he's like a super Jew, okay? And he's got the, like, the receipts to match. He calls him out to his face in front of everyone and condemns him before Jew and Gentile and the circumcision group. This is a big deal, okay? This is the equivalent of you calling out your father at Thanksgiving. And it's a reunion, by the way. And you condemn him for his racist bullcrap. And how dare you make my friend blank that I brought to dinner or a sibling that doesn't, is not, isn't white feel how they feel? How dare you, right? It's that kind of power challenge, do you understand? The thing is, is that in these two, uh, I wonder if you've determined already which is which. Which deals with the distribution of goods kind of power, and which deals with the consequences of social power. You see, it is not that we need to be perfect as much as honest. About the walls of separation that we have yet to unlearn. Because we all come into the church conditioned by society by the very walls we were trained by. Whether it's by gender, race, ethnicity, or even, you know, I'm not from Pittsburgh, but I heard even social geography is a big deal here, right? I I was hanging out with some rich people at one point, and I remember them saying something about, um, it's not Mount Lebanon, maybe it's Castle Shannon. I remember them saying something about, are they on the Castle side or the Shannon side? And I was like, what? I still don't know what that means. But I do know it meant something about there's a good side and a bad side. One side's superior and the other side isn't. My point is, is that I, don't have to, I shouldn't have to explain to you 
that there's something that you have been conditioned by too. Amen? That you bring into the church. It's a wall of separation. You've been conditioned by it. And since society and the world will be burned away when Christ returns, why do you cling to it? Why? Why do we? To not let the word of our testimonies be burned up along with society's norms, we must not only learn about God's multi-ethnic glorious image of how all things will be in Revelation 7-9, but we must also unlearn in order to truly embody it, to live it, to get it. This dance of learning and unlearning is essential to obedience here, dear Christian. From the Jewish and Greek widows to two apostles, you know, having it out in front of everybody, um, this dance has been going ongoing, an ongoing challenge to faithfully live into. This faithfulness, or obedience, if you will, is not just about where we place our bodies on Sunday morning, despite Dr. Martin Luther King's charge, but what we confess and repent within them. When has this ever worked, you may ask? Well, I don't have an answer as much as a word and some precedence worth naming. There's a term called perichoresis that I want to introduce you to. It means mutual indwelling. And this is this idea of being within one another without compromising our own integrity and distinction. My point is, there can be no perichoresis where there's assimilation. There can be no perichoresis where there's subjugation. There can be no perichoresis where there's colonization. My point is, if you're married to someone, can I get an amen if you're married? Okay, and if they didn't say amen, you could deal with them after church, okay? If you're married, you are daily practicing perichoresis. Do you stop being a wife just because your husband does, you know, the things they do? That's a real question. Uh, those watching, everyone said no. Do you, do, you, do you stop being a husband even though your wife tells you what to do and not to do? Do you stop being the man that you are, let me ask you differently, that you came to the marriage as? just because you have a wife. You change a bit, but you're still the man you came in as. Amen? You're still the woman you came in as. That never goes away. That's perichoresis. It's this idea that we are amongst each other, yet we still are carrying our distinction. Um, the, the Trinity is an example of this. God three in one. The Spirit, the Son, and the Father, all distinct, yet one. Another example, like I said, is marriage. And within marriage, a more even carnal example is physical intimacy between a man and a woman in holy matrimony. That even this idea, and I mean mechanically, that you are in but not the same. That you are intertwined yet distinctive. That very act is a physiological example of perichoresis. And another example, one of my favorites, is dancing. You see, I'm a Latin ballroom instructor uh, by night. I, you know, I preach by day. No, okay. Thank you for laughing. I thought it was a funny joke. But anyway, as a salsa instructor, I use the Latin ballroom as a means to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, everything, um, I believe, points back to who God is, even Latin ballroom. And if you want to, you know, I could do a date night for couples one night and show you how salsa dancing points to the gospel. C call Pastor Chris. Anyway. But when I teach students, the reason I tell you this is not to kind of brag or, you know, come and teach you guys, which would be fun, but to explain the fact that um, there's two types of students I get. There's those who are a blank canvas and just like, teach me, I know nothing, <laughs> right? I have, left two, I have two left feet, and I'm like, well, we should call a doctor, but anyway. 
And the other student is someone who comes in with some previous experience or expertise in another dance form. So again, the one is a blank canvas, and the other student is someone who, oh, I know some stuff. And I can honestly tell you today, I've been teaching salsa dancing since I want to say 2015, 2016. Um, guess who, who is my favorite to teach? It's the, it's the former, the blank canvas. Um, and the latter is the toughest. Because the former, I can get straight into instruction and learning immediately. We can start learning. But the other, I first have to break them of what they think they know until they unlearn that. Then their psychological and somatic absorption rate for comprehension and instruction and adaptation is greatly um, less impeded and slowed. That was a technical term for like, they learn faster when they, like, I break them. But, but, but I can't break them of what they don't want to let go of. So until they're willing to let go of the fact that I have to unlearn how my body wants to move to the rhythm based on swing or ballet or whatever, then I'll, until I unlearn that, then I'm willing to learn. Michael, what's your point? I know it's not about dance. I'll get, I'll get there. You see, to join God's global church, to join Revelation 7-9, we must not only read the word, pray, but embody it. Not alone, uh, not cognitively alone, not intellectually alone, not intellectually understand, but with and within our very bodies and community. That means earning, no, no, that doesn't mean, that demands learning and unlearning. Each of us have come in here knowing a different form of dance, a different way of being when it comes to being around men, women, non-binary, Latinos, um, Central Americans, Asians of different ethnicities, right? Um, Islanders, uh, you know, African Americans, Africans. We've all come in with some previous experience with how our bodies should move around them or feel around them, amen? And that makes you the kind of student I, I, <laughs> I don't like to teach. No, my point is, I like to teach them. They all pay the same, but... Um, but there are things in your and my body, walls of separation, yet to be crushed. Amen? That you won't even know are there until you come to the dance. You won't even know are there until a young suitor from that ethnicity that your grandma warned you about asked to take out your teenage child on a date. There's things in your body you won't know are there until you walk in a room full of those bodies that you were taught to be afraid of or to survive amongst. Our obedience is not so much about the percentage of demographics within the room of diversity as much as the percentage of our bodies, automatic physiological responses to other bodies. What does your body do that you don't have to think about when there's certain people in the room? My, my wife has taught me that most women um, do this every morning. That they, when they, how they even garb their bodies, garb, that's a weird word, dress themselves, is usually anticipating the, body, the male bodies they may or may not face. Amen? Come on, are there any ladies in the room? Amen? Okay, thank you. I was like, I mean, I think my wife's right. I believe her. My point is, is that even women daily have to anticipate how, how much will, how am I dressing will draw in lusts of men. So women daily are often anticipating how much of society's walls of separation they will have to survive. 
And this is my challenge, that the automatic physiological anticipation or constrictions or bracing or old contempts taught to us by our ancestors and elders uh, that we can regularly and rhythmically submit and confess these to the Father and repent. But we can't stop there. We have to put our bodies in new spaces. You and I continually must rely on the blood of Christ and the goodness of God to remediate our hearts from the root to the fruit, the walls of separation that we have been so inundated by in this land we call North America, blinded by its dreams of diversity. It never has fully awakened to the horrors of its racial harms. To Native Americans, African Americans, Africans, Central Americans, Mexican Americans, Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Filipino, Latino, Indian bodies, and more, and even the more aversive to gaze upon, like the bodies of Palestinians, Uyghurs, Romas, Congolese, South African, poor Appalachian whites, Appalachian, did I say that right? Appalachian, whites, and even urban bodies, which we all know is code for black. at the cost of making the white bodies that live in an urban environment invisible. So much, so much that many wander between the half-awake and half-asleep land we call home. But the church of God is not called to such a selective slumber, for we are called to a vision that we anticipate in knowing that God will bring us in his glory. Amen? I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm Southern Baptist. I'm excited already. Y'all can join me or not. Because if we cannot participate in the global church's obedience, how can we in North America ever claim before God Almighty that we truly loved our neighbor as we loved ourselves? And if we cannot claim that, can we honestly say to the Father that we loved him at all? For if we cannot and will not love our neighbor enough to purge ourselves of our power in the room, particularly in the church at least, how can we ever say we loved him? Now, this is something I added during worship, and I'm almost done here. But a word to the church as we enter a political season. A season that is, I believe, often more about our surviving it than democracy at all. I don't know if Christianity in North America will continue to join the global church of God when we so easily slip into the sin of Peter in Galatians 2 every four years. You see, Peter was a victim of cowardice and was moved by polarity rather than steadied by the complexity of the gospel for both Jew and Gentile alike. What I mean is this. As Christians, we are not called to polarity but complexity. I'll say that again. As a Christian, you and I are not called to polarity but complexity of the gospel. Complexity is where diversity thrives where community within diversity lives, where unity in Christ dances. We are not a witness to the world at all and do not live into that manifold witness of Ephesians 3 that Pastor Chris mentioned when as soon as a land asks us to pick a side, we so quickly forget that we don't even belong here, dearly beloved. That we are not uh, of this kingdom, but another, an eternal one. We are more than independents, Republicans, and Democrats. Amen? Amen. You are a saint! Washed by the blood of the Lamb, such a high price that how can we ever bend the knee or contort our brow to the idols of elephants and donkeys? How dare we? 
Christianity crushes diversity when the community of the saints confounds the lines that divide us in this land. Are we not more easily manipulated when we are polarized? Let us throw off the tug and deception of Peter's sin and live into Paul's charge to him. And remember that we were bought with a price. Amen? And our political beliefs submit to the word of God before any pundit or candidate that tickles our ears or tickles the walls of separation we were conditioned by as a kid. Ultimately, this is not your home. This is the land that you occupy. Beloved, let us confess and repent and pray that all the church of Pittsburgh will join us so that we may enjoy the foretaste of Revelation 7-9 now and all the more then. To dance with the heart of God amongst the people to such joyous treble that the neighborhoods of Pittsburgh are thirsty for the living water at the very sound, sight, no, ruckus of our praise and dancing. Revelation 7-9 is not about assimilation. It's about perichoresis of the highest order. Let's read it again to verse 11 now. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 11, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, verse 12, Amen! Isn't that a fun thing to start with? Usually we end with amen, but in glory we will begin with Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. To begin and start with amen. Mm. Blessed be the day. Do you realize that we're not called to idolize diversity for diversity's sake? But for Christ's sake. Diversity is a byproduct as much as racism and sexism and xenophobia, transphobia, homophobia are a byproduct and a means to an end. It's not about diversity in Revelations, in the scripture we just read. It is a byproduct of sharing the same object of our, of our faith, the same object of our hope, the same object of our salvation. Fully manifest together, not uniform, but united in the angelic chorus of awe, glory, and honor of the Most High God, who was and is and is to come. Can somebody give a shout of glory or something to me? Come on. We're talking about, we're talking about where we're going. This is the reason I get to see my mother again. This is the reason I get to see my father again. This is the reason I get to see the daughter I lost again. This is the reason you get to see your beloveds again. I should get you excited. So, does Christianity crush diversity? Well, the church of God does. Will the church of Pittsburgh join in both form and function? I don't have that answer. But we can beseech God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to allow the Holy Spirit to move on this city until we do. Amen? Amen. Thanks be to God.